One fascinating study compared depression and light, and they compared placebo, Prozac, and 10,000 lux for 30 minutes in the morning. Light was more effective than placebo at two weeks. Prozac was only statistically significant at eight weeks. And then light was more effective than Prozac. So light seems to be very powerful for both non-seasonal and seasonal depression. I think it's about tuning in to those incredibly powerful environmental drivers of our biology. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. This week, I'm welcoming back Professor Russell Foster, one of the world's foremost experts on circadian rhythms and sleep. Now, Russell is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at the University of Oxford and author of the fantastic book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. Now, the last time I spoke with Russell on episode 292 of my podcast, we took a deep dive into circadian rhythms, sleep chronotypes, and how we can best live in sync with our body clocks. This conversation very much picks up where we left off and takes in some of the very latest evidence on how we can use circadian science to optimize our sleep. Now, in this conversation, we cover so many different topics. The potential downsides of sharing a bed with your partner, whether sleep trackers are useful or not, why routine is key when it comes to sleep and health, the vital importance of daytime light, why we should try our best to avoid evening light, how we can help our kids reduce their screen time, and how our body temperature can affect our sleep. Russell also shares the latest research on sleeping pills, magnesium, melatonin, and the best ways to use them. And we also cover the issue of waking up to pee at night, the importance of rest and relaxation, naps, sound frequency therapy, weighted blankets, and so much more. This really is a wonderful conversation, jam-packed with practical insights that you can use immediately to improve how you sleep, wake, and live. I wanted to start off by talking about something that is often not discussed, I think when it comes to sleep, and that's the issue of partners mm. sleeping in the same bed. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking about this fairly recently, and and I've talked about it, I think, in the book too. And I'm saying that, look, if you find it difficult to sleep with your partner, then, and if you can, find an alternative sleeping space. Because it's no reflection upon your relationship. If your partner snores, for example, or the bed is too hot, or if they wriggle around a lot find an alternative space. And in fact, it's not the end of a relationship. And so many people have come up and said, oh no, I couldn't possibly sleep in a separate bed. It's the, it marks the end of a marriage. It doesn't. It marks the beginning of a new wonderful phase in your relationship because you both get decent sleep. Um, you don't resent somebody sort of jabbing you in the ribs because you're snoring or whatever. And you can have nice little rituals of, of, of getting together in the morning to have a cup of tea or whatever. So I don't see the problem at all. But there is that psychology that, oh, you know, it's, it's, you've got to sleep together. Don't agree with it. <clears throat> if I think about the UK 
or the US, I would imagine that in these countries and cultures, there may be a bit of pushback. Oh, yes. And go, no, no, if you're in a couple, you sleep in the same bed. Yeah. But I imagine there's many cultures around the world where this is not the case. That's true. Um, and and it, 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 there's a whole spectrum. So I, I remember when I first went to Germany as, with my wife and they had, we were given this fantastic room, huge bed, but separate duvets, which is a really smart thing because often the, the temperature ranges for, for, for couples will change. So separate duvets is a really easy solution to that. Snoring is, of course, a lot more problem, problematic. But, but also in cultures like Japan, um, it's very frequent that the children sleep with the mother and the father sleeps separately. So mm -hmm. it, there's, there's every sort of um, relationship. And, of course, the aristocrats... Um, it was always, you know, they always had separate separate bedrooms. Yeah, it's interesting. I was chatting to one of my best mates about this recently, and he's a spinal surgeon on the south coast of England. And he said to me, mate, no way, that's the start of the end. Yeah. If you don't sleep in the same bed mm. as your partner. That's how ingrained it is. Yes. But I guess let's look at the flip side. In our first conversation, we discussed together how poor sleep has so many impacts on yes. our short-term and long-term health. And if we just think about the short-term, poor sleep leads to less compassion, less empathy. Um, Reduced sense of humour. Reduced sense boy, of humour. You need humour in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, so by that logic, of course, if sleeping in the same bed is resulting in one or both parties not getting enough sleep, which means you have less empathy, less sense of humour, less tolerance to a whole host of different things, yeah. it kind of stands to reason if you have the space, and of course not everyone does. That's the issue. Yeah. Right? If you have the, the space and the capability, it might actually improve your relationship. I, I, that's how I would argue it. Absolutely. Yes. Now you have to be slightly careful because what you want to make sure that your partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea. So this is where the musculature of the neck will will uh, uh, will, will collapse and, and block the airway, and so they'll be sort of snoring away, and then they'll just stop, and then they'll wake themselves up. The brain realizes it's been deprived of oxygen, and, and so the individual wakes up and, and, and splutters and, and snores and all the rest of it. And now that's serious, and 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 that needs to be looked at by a GP. And there are easy ways to, to fix it. Um, so, you know, just make sure that your, your partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea. So when you're um, giving us that warning, are you essentially saying, let's look after our partner? If you think there's an issue before you move into the spare room, yep. just have a look and, and at least ask the question, could this be sleep apnea? Is that what you're getting uh, at? Exactly, yes. And of course, you can get apps which you can download and, and actually listen to your snoring pattern. And people have done that. Um, and they're pretty accurate too. So yes, just be careful that it's not obstructive sleep apnea. Um, snoring is, is one issue. And of course, snoring can be enhanced by increased weight gain. Rather sadly, as we get older, um, we deposit more fat in the tongue. And so, mm. so, so that can also restrict the airway. Alcohol, of course, will relax the musculature and you're much more prone to snore uh, if you've had um, too much alcohol. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke to the US physician, Dr. William Lee, last year on this podcast. And he's done a lot of research into food, but also visceral fats. Mm -hmm. And he said, one of the first places we store visceral fat in the body is in the tongue. I know, isn't it extraordinary? Who'd yeah. have thought it? Yeah. Mm. So 
Isn't it? It's bad enough getting old without having a fat tongue. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned snoring and you mentioned obstructive sleep apnea. Yep. Just so we're bringing everyone along uh, and no one's getting confused, they're different things, aren't they? Yeah, they, they, they can, can be overlapped. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So snoring would be just the vibration of, 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 of the tissues in the back of the throat. Anything um, to be worried about snoring? Um, I don't know. I mean, if it's very loud, um, I'd, I'd sort of think about some corrective measures, such as making sure that you're not drinking too much, that um, you may want to sort of prop yourself up, up a bit. But Broadly speaking, straight snoring is not, nothing to be particularly worried about. But obstructive sleep apnea is, because what you're doing is you're having periods of oxygen deprivation to the brain. And then when the brain wakes itself up, it, you're getting surges in blood pressure. And that can be very bad for the small vasculature in the eye, for example, um, and of course in the brain. So, so that really does need to be looked at. And, and so there are, there's a, a correlation between our higher rates of, of obstructive sleep apnea and dementia for example. If someone is listening to this and they do snore mm -hmm. or their partner snores and yep. they're not sure, is this just a bit of mild snoring or mm. is this something more serious? Mm. What would you advise them to do? Well, ideally you go to your GP and they'll recommend you go to a clinic and well, well you'll spend a, a, a night and then they'll, they'll look at you in some detail and, and they'll monitor the breathing and, and, and the snoring and the potentially the obstructive sleep apnea. But there are so few sleep clinics like that, it's tricky. Uh, and I mentioned that there are apps you can download. And so what I, I, I would recommend is talking to the GP, seeing what the options are. And if, if there's a waiting list of two years or whatever it is to get to the sleep clinic, ask specifically about what NHS recommends in terms of downloadable apps to monitor your snoring and potential sleep apnea. Now, in our first conversation, Russell, I asked you what your views on sleep trackers hmm. were. And you were quite clear that there's very few uses you thought they were good for. You yeah. were sort of saying that, sure, for some people they might be okay, but you were saying that no sleep federation actually endorses the use of them. Yeah, that's still the case. So that's still the case. Still the case, yeah. And so, so, so none, of, and then, and and also none are FDA approved at the moment. Which means what for for an individual who's mm. thinking, you know, what I see all these adverts yeah. for sleep trackers, maybe a ring or maybe a bracelet that I yeah. wear twenty four seven. Why should they be concerned, or why should they proceed with caution? over the fact that you've just said they're not approved by the sleep federations. Yeah, well, well, so for example, you'll often read um, medically validated, and that can mean just about anything. Um, uh, and so, for example, what it often means, and excuse me for being cynical, is that it's been tested on eight um, Californian undergraduates um, for a couple of nights in a sleep lab. Uh, if you're lucky, sometimes it's only one night in a sleep lab, and that's just not good enough. Um, and also, because sleep is so dynamic, as we discussed last time, a single um, 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 algorithm uh, is simply not going to work across the variety of sleep patterns that we see and as sleep changes as we age. Now, I'm down on them now. Um, and as I said before, they can be useful in terms of telling you roughly what time you went to sleep and what time you woke up. And that's can be, and if you woke up in, in the middle of the night. But anything more sophisticated than that, I would be very uneasy about. And indeed, there are now instances of people using these, these devices and, and, and getting sleep anxiety. It's now a recognised condition. Yeah. People get so worried about the sleep information they're getting from these apps, and they're, they're 
in large measure I- inaccurate. Um, so don't take them too seriously. However, what I think is on the horizon with AI is a much more interactive device, which means that it can pick up biometric signals, accurate biometric uh, and signals. And what does that mean? Well, it can tell, you know, roughly what your, your breathing rate is, your, your pulse rate, um, and uh, your activity accurately, and integrate that into a dynamic algorithm, which can say, oh, yeah, I understand. I can tweak the algorithm that fits this sort of person's sleep habits. And so uh, I think that they might, as time goes on, I would imagine in 10 years' time, they will be more useful and they probably give a much greater accuracy for the sleep that we that we actually experience. Yeah, I guess so like many things, it's early technology. Yeah. It's rapidly evolving. Yeah. And maybe in the future they'll be a lot more accurate. It's really interesting. I don't think I shared this with you last time we spoke. In fact, I don't think I'd had the conversation at that point. Just over a year ago, I spoke to the Kenyan elite marathon runner Elliot Kipchoge. He's the only marathon runner to have run under two hours, a marathon in under two hours, which is just staggering, yeah, basically. Absolutely extraordinary. And he does wear uh, an aura ring mm. to track his sleep. And I asked him, on the morning of a big race, you know, what happens? Do you look mm. at it? You know, if, what if your readiness <laughs> yeah. score is over? He goes, I'm mm. never looking at it on the morning of a race. <laughs> because he knows that mm. he doesn't sleep well, like all of us the night before something big, or like many of us, I should say. And he knows for his optimal performance, in order to be confident, go into that race, perform at his best, he doesn't need to see a poor sleep score or a poor readiness score. Absolutely. And I think that... Which really is quite telling. Say, yeah, it is, absolutely. And of course, it's it's very interesting that we um, feel as though we need to be told by some inaccurate device how we feel. And we're the best in the best position to, to determine how we're feeling, whether we're, we're firing all cylinders, where we're feeling, you know, uh, uh, able to perform. So what are the best questions that one can ask themselves to determine if their sleep is adequate or yeah. they're sleeping enough? Oh, and that's straightforward. You know, um, uh, it, it, I, I suppose the first would be, do you feel that you can function optimally during the day? Are you, are you firing all your cylinders? Uh, do you um, rely on an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning uh, or a partner to, to wake you up in the morning if you're staying in the same bed? Um, uh, do, do, do you feel tired and sleepy during the day? Critically, do you oversleep on free days at the weekend, for example? And what does that mean? Well, basically, um, normally, you know, you You've got you've got to get up at a particular time during during the the, the, the week, and then you're you're sleeping in for two or three hours uh, at the weekend, and that's telling you you're not getting enough sleep uh, during the week, and so you need to go to bed earlier and get the sleep that you need. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that many people think, oh, I can just completely catch up um, by oversleeping at the weekend. You can partially, but not fully. Some really interesting experiments have shown is you don't fully catch up after a, a, a weekend of of oversleeping. You're still starting Monday with a sleep debt. So you've got to really get that stability. The other problem, of course, about oversleeping is that you're not getting the morning light, which is so important for setting the body clock and the sleep-wake cycle. To make it really practical though, Russell, some people will say, I get what you're saying, but my life is tough in the week with my children, with my work demands. I just can't go to bed at a time that would be optimal. And I do need an alarm clock because my job yeah. is what feeds me and my family. Mm. In that situation, 
at the weekend, let's say on a conventional uh, Monday to Friday job, is there a downside to sleeping in? And the second part of this question is, what about catch-up naps on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yes, it is It is difficult. But it's all about prioritising. Um, because we can cut our sleep, we think that we can squeeze other sorts of activities into the time that we would normally sleep. So we've got to take our sleep seriously. And if we need eight hours or seven hours, we need to go to bed at a time that will deliver that duration of sleep that we need. So it's, it is about prioritising. Um, Oversleeping, as we touched on, uh, is you won't catch up fully and you can delude yourself that you can, oh, I can oversleep at the weekends, I'll be fine for Monday. The data suggests that that is not the case. You can certainly, it can certainly reduce the sleep debt, but not fully. The other key thing, of course, is you're not getting that morning light. You're not getting that, um, that, that important time giver to set the clock and the sleep-wake cycle accordingly. So, uh, you know, all of the, the data that we've got suggests that it's regularity, which is the key thing that we have to achieve for our sleep-wake cycle. You mentioned morning light. I know we covered it in our first conversation, mm. but for anyone who's not heard that, perhaps give us an overview. You know, yeah. what is morning light? Why is it so important? And how much do we need? Yeah. So we have this internal clock, which is fine-tuning our biology to the very demands of the 24-hour day. Um, and what is it? You say internal clock. Many of us picture a clock on our <laughs> desk, right? So, so you know, what, yeah. when you say we have an internal clock, what, what does that look like? Well, actually, there is a master clock within the brain, um, uh, and it's called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. So essentially, you can think about where this is. As the optic nerves go into the brain and fuse, sitting above there is a small paired structure of about 50,000 cells. And, and, and each one of those cells is capable of generating an endogenous 24-hour rhythm. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And it's based upon a molecular feedback loop, so clock genes are turned on, they make their proteins, those proteins then form a complex, they then go into the nucleus and turn off their own genes. The protein complex is then degraded, mm -hmm. and then the whole thing can start again. And so it's a, it's a biological oscillation of about 24 hours, but it's not exactly 24 hours. Um, and so it needs to be set to the, to the real day. So the internal day needs to be aligned to the external day. And the most important thing for that, it's not the only thing, but the most important thing is light. Now, light does different things to the clock at different times. So morning light makes us get up earlier. It advances the clock. Evening light delays the clock, makes us get up later. Now, because most of us, 90% of us, have a body clock that is slightly longer than 24 hours, we, under constant conditions, would drift later and later and later. So what we need to be entrained to get that internal clock aligned to the external world is a daily nudge, an advance. That's why morning light is so important because it gives us that advance, um, uh, which is what we need on a daily basis. So interestingly, um, we did some studies on some students all over the world. Um, and of course, students are notoriously late types, but we found that the later the chronotype, and I know we touched on chronotypes last time, the more evening light they got, which would delay the clock at the expense of morning light. So they were sleeping through, not getting the advancing morning light, but they're out in the late afternoon, early evening, getting the dusk light, which is delaying the clock even further. So when we see light, it's so important. So we want to get light exposure 
ideally natural light outside as close to our wake-up time as yeah, possible. Exactly. Yeah. Now, a couple of things to elaborate on there. We're recording this conversation in January <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. So we're at the height of the British winter. Yeah. Which means it doesn't often depends whether it's uh, clouds in the sky or clear, mm. but it can often be 8 a.m. until you're getting morning Absolutely. light. Yeah. So, well, it was. It is It is at the moment about 8 a.m. Yeah. So many children, uh, many adults are having to get up, let's say at 6.30 a.m., to get ready for their day's activities. Yeah. So they get up at 6.30, let's say with an alarm clock, which may not be ideal, but maybe in reality what's happening for a lot of people your advice is you need to get morning light as soon as possible. Yep. Now, morning light may not be available from the outside until 90 minutes after that. Yes. In the summer, I get it, easy. Everyone wants yep. to go outside and get their feet on the grass if they have gone or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yes. On the wet, damp conditions at the moment, people don't want to do that. Yeah. So what's your advice with respect to that and also what does indoor lighting do and these kind of sad lamps, I guess? You know, yeah. what, what, are they useful? Uh, well, they're certainly useful. And, and I think we, we could learn something from our, our Scandinavian cousins here. Um, and so in Tromsø, which I've, I visited, it's the most extraordinary place. Where's Tromsø? Tromsø, northern Norway. Um, uh, and it's in the Arctic Circle. And of course, it's dark for two months of the year. And what the families do there is that they will have a light box and it's set to produce more than 2,000 lux. Um, and we can talk about lux levels in a moment um, for 30 minutes. So 2,000 plus lux, perhaps as high as, as 10,000 lux in some cases. And they have their breakfast uh, in, in a room where there's artificial light and they use that to set the clock to the, uh, to, the, to the external world. Of course, there's not much of a light dark cycle, but of course they're stabilizing it in a sense for social reasons. And have they done that on the basis of scientific experiments or has it been something that they've figured out over time we need to do this yeah. for our physical and mental well-being. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got good data showing that morning light is really important for, for, for stabilising sleep-wake. And also, you, you mentioned seasonal affective disorder. Uh, the treatment, I mean, some data for sad and light is really interesting. Many of us were very sceptical when this first emerged. You know, say, oh, well, you, you, you know, sit in front of a light box. What's the control? You know, you sit on the, in front of a light box and you don't turn the lights on. You can, you know, you work out that you're, 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 it's not going to work. Um, so, so is it just a placebo effect? Uh, and then uh, a range of much more sophisticated experiments showed that it really was the light. And one fascinating study compared um, non-seasonal depression and light. And they compared placebo, Prozac, and 10,000 lux for 30 minutes in the morning. And light was more effective than placebo at two weeks. Prozac was only statistically significant at eight weeks. And then light was more effective than, than, than Prozac. So light seems to be very powerful for both non-seasonal and seasonal depression. This is a really interesting point. Something I wanted to discuss with you today. This idea that light is medicine this idea that light is a drug. Hmm. But we, as a society, don't see light as a drug. We, we just think, well, we can expose ourselves to whatever light we want, whenever we want. You know, light is, you know, separate to our lives. We get on with our lives. We do our work. We go on social media. We see our friends. We do whatever, but we don't give attention to light. Hmm. 
that your trial that you just mentioned there, or certainly the trial you're you're citing, is really comparing light to a drug. Yes, yes, absolutely. So in your view, is should we consider light as powerful as drugs? I think we absolutely can. I'm, I'm, I mean, it, and it would be naive not to think that for the following reason. You know, all life on Earth has evolved on a planet that rotates once every 24 hours. We're exposed to a light-dark cycle. The light-dark cycle has dominated our evolution and our biology. Um, and because from, what, the 1950s, we could produce cheap, affordable, efficient light, we've invaded the night um, and we've thrown away this incredible part of our biology uh, as a result. And, and, it's, and it's fascinating that, that, that you know, the, the humans are r- wonderful. I mean, we're remarkably arrogant. We, we think we can do whatever we want, whatever time we choose. I mean, you know, it's part of the success story. Uh, uh, but actually, we do it at some considerable cost. And I think, I think it's about tuning in to those incredibly powerful biological drivers, environmental drivers of our biology. You say it's part of our success story. And again, this is something I've been reflecting on recently on, on long walks, Russell, this idea that <laughs> we say that humans are really evolved and look at what we've achieved with our skyscrapers and our phones and our technology. But you could also make the case that we have epidemic rates of chronic disease. We have epidemic rates of mental health dysfunction. Mm. And so I guess sometimes we need to challenge the narrative that this is a success story. Do you know what I mean? I know that's slightly controversial and I'm not pushing back at what you're saying. I just think Mm. as a general point, it's like worth considering that there are some cultures and some parts in the world where yes, let's say they've got other issues to contend with, Mm. but their chronic disease rates are much lower. They don't have mental health dysfunction. Like a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes, yes, they may have threats from predators. And we regard our lives as better, many of us, which speaks to this arrogance that I think many modern humans have. But I think we could also make a case to go, well, is it necessarily better? Well, I'm, I'm certainly arguing for a bit more humility. It's all about its understanding. And of course, yeah. what we haven't had is uh, uh, out there the education that allows us to make sensible decisions yeah. about our lives. And and that's the thing that's changing. And I think people are thinking, hang on, I, I do need to reconnect a bit. I do need to get that that balance. Yeah. In, into balance. Um, and, and so, I th- I, yeah, I, I, it's all about education for me. And it's, it's trying to have the information to make the best decisions about our lives. Yeah. Um, and so that we can embrace the extraordinary successes of our species, yeah. but also not get kicked in the teeth by them. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think it's possible to have the best of, you know, modern humanity if we just remember some of the kind of... U- evolutionary principles, yeah. as it were. Yeah. You know, if we can remember those and apply them in the context of the modern world, we can possibly have our cake and eat it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah but I mean, we can't do uh, everything that we want to do uh, at any time of the day. There's a balance. We've got to prioritise and we've got to structure our days so that we can achieve what we need to achieve, but also not at the expense of fundamental biology like sleep. You mentioned that it was in the 1950s that we ha- we we discovered ways to make light and and you know our use of light much more cheap mm. and more accessible. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit about what happened in the 1970s and 80s with food. Mm. Mm. We found ways to make 
energy dense, calorie rich, super tasty foods Mm. that we can't resist. And now I think many of us are aware of this junk food problem that exists in society. You could kind of make the same case with lights. Mm, that I we, think it's a good, good analogy. We yeah. have a junk light problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I mean it's 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 very interesting because there was a, a House of Lords um, Science and Technology Select Committee on the impact of light and noise pollution on human health, and particularly how it affected uh, uh, how it affects our sleep wake um, cycle. And it was really interesting to see how Parliament is now beginning to take these sorts of issues seriously. And and I urge people to to go onto the web. Website, House of Lords website, and look at the Select Committee report. It's really interesting. Let's just go back to partners for a minute sleeping in separate beds. When you have spoken about this at live talks or in the mm. media before, you know, what kind of comments have you had from people? Has there been a lot of pushback? Are some people saying, no, my husband and I have been doing this for 30 years and it's the best thing we ever did? Or are you mostly getting pushback against that idea? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Bond Charge, one of the sponsors of today's show. Now in this episode, we are hearing about the importance of sleep and what small things we can do that will help. And for me, there's no question that when I swapped out my usual bedside bulbs to Bond Charge's amber low light bulbs, it made a huge difference. And for many years now, all the bedside lamps in my house contain these bulbs. Now, Bond Charge also make fantastic blue light blocking glasses, which I think are some of the highest quality out there. And another product of theirs that I really like, that many of you I know also like, is their infrared sauna blankets, which is much cheaper and more accessible than having a sauna in your own home. It's really easy to set up. It takes less than a minute. And you can basically enjoy a 30 or 40 minute session whilst relaxing, reading, or watching TV. It can help with all manner of things, including relaxation, stress reduction, and of course, sleep. If you go to bondcharge.com forward slash live more and use the coupon codes live more, they are giving you an incredible 20% off all of their products. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash live more and use the coupon codes live more to save 20%. Before we get back to the conversation, just wanted to let you know about a live event that I am doing in London on Thursday, the 29th of February. Now, in this episode with Russell, we're talking a lot about routine and rhythm. And as you may know, I recently partnered with Intelligent Change to create my very own journal, the Three Question Journal. Now, Intelligent Change have put on what I think is going to be a very special evening at the beautiful St. Mary's Church in London. The evening is called Redefining Routine. And I will be on stage talking about the importance of routine how we go about creating daily rituals, how to build resilience, and how a simple routine of reflective questioning can revolutionize your life and, of course, your sleep. There will be plenty of time for questions and answers. And with every ticket for the event, you will also get a copy of the three-question journal. So if you want to come along, either by yourself or with your friends, you can see all details at drchatterjee.com forward slash events. 
And if you can't make it and just want to check out the journal, just go to drchatterjee.com forward slash journal. I'm not getting pushback. In fact, what's happened is that a bunch of celebrities, you know, then came out saying, oh, yeah, well, of course, you'd be sleeping in separate beds. And, 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 and actually, of course, endorsement by a celebrity means it's kind of okay to many people. <laughs> forget an endorsement <laughs> yeah, by forget, you. Yeah, I mean, just studying yeah, this. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I know, I, I, it's been the reverse. People, I think actually people have felt, phew, I'm so relieved. I don't mm. have to feel guilty about it any longer. And I think initially people probably push back because they think, yeah, but what about intimacy? Mm. But I don't think sleeping in the same bedroom equals intimacy. No. Because you could, let's say, I mean, it's not an extreme example at all. I think it's happening in many bedrooms around the world <laughs> where you're in a double bed with your partner and each of you are on your own devices, mm. Right. You're physically in the same space, but mentally you could be 10 to 1,000 miles away. One of you is in your curated world <laughs> of entertainment. The other one is in their curated world. So yeah, sure, you're in the same bed. Yeah. But is that intimacy? No. Well, no. No, no, absolutely. And of course, you know, if you want to promote intimacy, you have to have empathy. You have to be responsive to the, the, the behavior of your partner. You have to have a sense of humor often. You have, to, you have to enjoy other people. And you'll enjoy other people a lot more if you've had a good night of sleep. So one option is separate rooms. Yep. The other option, which you have touched on, which you first came across in Germany, is mm. you're still in the same beds, but you have a separate duvet. Yeah. Are there any other options you can think of when it comes to couples potentially sort of dealing with the, this yeah, issue? Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the default is is um, um, ear, earplugs. Um, but a lot of people just can't cope with those um, uh, to, to block out any snoring noise, for example. Um, but temperature, I think, is also an important mm. factor. Um, males and females have different temperature preferences on average. So men prefer a slightly lower temperature compared to females, to, mm. compared to women. Um, and what's the basis for that? Well, we don't fully know, but one argument is that men tend to be larger, Therefore, they have a uh, reduced surface area to volume, mm -hmm. so they're not going to lose heat as red readily. Also, men tend to have more um, muscle than fat um, compared to women, and muscle is metabolically more active and they're produ therefore producing more heat. So that mm. might be part of the difference and, and why, you know, the Germans have, have, you know, used separate duvets. But there are now mattresses which also take the heat away from um, the, the, the sleeper. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think it started as a bit of a sort of a selling issue, but there are data suggesting that actually they do improve sleep. I mean, we should talk, we should talk about temperature and, and the importance of temperature for sleep generally. Yeah, let's, let's see that. It's interesting as you say that. I spoke to a friend of mine yesterday and I told them that you were coming back to the studio today. And she said to me, I don't know if this is a bit weird or not, but... <laughs> You know, <laughs> okay. My husband and I like different temperatures. Mm. He likes to sleep completely naked, mm. and I've got loads and loads of clothes on, and the duvet's wrapped around me. Yeah, that works for us. So I thought I'd put it to you. That kind of speaks to what we're talking about, right? It's mm. presumably there's a temperature regulation difference or a temperature preference difference between the two of them. Yeah, and the way they're managing that is 
by the clothes that they're wearing. And fantastic, yes, absolutely, yeah. Have you heard that from others? Oh, absolutely, yes. And and the sorts of the sorts of things you can wear in bed. You know, some people just wear a t-shirt. Um, uh, I think night shirts are, are becoming more of replacing pajamas in certain really? sectors. Maybe it's because I'm just dealing with an older demographic. But you know, yes. Uh, and so I think it's finding as as long as the material is cotton or linen and absorbent and and um, comfortable, uh, then I think you, there's lots of different options. Yeah. At the end of our first conversation, Russell, you briefly touched on biphasic and polyphasic sleep. Yeah. I wonder if we could retouch on that. But then linked to that, I'm wondering, you know, has any of your work studied tribes, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes or, you know, tribes in different parts of the world? How do they sleep if there is a couple there, for example, a man and a woman, do they sleep in the same bed or are they in in different places. Yeah. Okay. We need to go back to a wonderful chap called Roger Aircook. Um, and he looked at the sleep habits of pre-industrial Europeans um, uh, from the writings, the diaries, um, and, and kept on finding references to a first and a second sleep. Um, and, and so went through, and, and there were records that go way, way back to... A, 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 polyphasic sleep. So not sleep in a single consolidated eight hours, as we're all told we've got to have, but people would wake up, they'd interact, um, then they'd go back to sleep again. And this was common. This was just the norm. And then it seems that uh, as we've developed a more industrial society and we've compressed our opportunity to sleep, the polyphasic sleep pattern is not as clearly pronounced as it was. You know, in the pre-industrial societies, light was incredibly expensive. I mean, the cost of a candle in the 19th century was almost equivalent to a working man's daily wage. You couldn't afford... And also they were made of fat. And you couldn't afford to burn fat because, you know, most people were were food poor. And so so we would... So the sleep-wake cycle was was dictated to a large extent by the the, the, the natural light environment. So anyway, um, Roger's work then stimulated a chap called Tom Weir to do some experiments. And, and he got young people into the lab, exposed them to 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness. So, you know, expanded the nighttime opportunity to sleep. And what he found was they became biphasic. So they then then sort of would go to sleep, they'd be asleep for a few hours, wake up, and then they'd go back to sleep again. Uh, and, and so you see this also in societies now without electric light. So people have studied to Renneberg, for example, societies in South America, and shown very nicely that sleep isn't a single consolidated block. And that's so important because, we you know, we're told eight hours consolidated, this is the perfect sleep pattern. And when people wake up, they think, oh my God, never going to get back to sleep. Um, I might as well start doing emails and drinking coffee. And, and of course, if you know that the biology uh, is, is, is like it is, and so if you stay calm, you stay relaxed, you keep the lights low, your chances are you will go back to sleep. So potentially we could make the case that a biphasic sleep pattern is the kind of natural human way to sleep. Can yeah. we say that? Well, I think I think that's fair. Under those sorts of circumstances, so for example, you would expect that biphasic, polyphasic sleep would be the dominant sleep type during the long 
nights of winter. I think perhaps by the time we get to the short nights mm. um, in the summer, we might find that the sleep patterns will, will, will change. So I think it'll depend upon changing, you know, light dark signals. But yeah, I, it's perfectly normal to have biphasic or polyphasic sleep at certain times of the year, I would say. And on that, something I've often felt, which kind of speaks to your work really, Russell, is that society has really lost its relationship with rhythm. Mm. You know, everything in nature, in life operates with rhythm. Absolutely. Whether it be a heartbeat, whether it yeah. be electrical activity, uh, whether it be the sleep-wake cycle. And even if we think about, let's say, a seven-day rhythm, and we think about the fact that Certainly when I was a kid, supermarkets in the UK were closed on Sundays. Oh, yes. Now, what's really interesting, if we really reflect on that, and of course many religions have a Sabbath or, or some sort of day of rest ingrained within them. Mm. Pre-internet, pre-supermarkets being open seven days a week and having online shopping seven days a week, you would naturally have rest on a seventh day. Right, So we have a rhythm there, and I, I kind of feel modern society tries to make us feel that every day is the same. Now, I get that we want similar wake-up times and bedtimes to help us with our circadian rhythm, but you mentioned winter and summer. And for many years, it's felt quite natural to me that in the winter, let's say in a Northern Hemisphere country like the UK, where you do have short days mm -hmm. in the winter, and you know it's not light till 8 a.m., it's it's dark at 4.30 p.m. and it's even more pronounced of that in places like Scandinavia, it kind of makes sense that you would spend longer in bed mm. and potentially sleep more in December and January as compared to the light months of June and July. Yeah. What does the research say? Well, studies have been done uh, which suggesting that we do increase our sleep duration a little bit during the winter. It's not huge, but but it does occur. Historically, I suspect it was very marked, but because we can manipulate our environment mm. in terms of light and temperature, I think it's become less pronounced. But it certainly occurs for, in many people. Yeah. So it's reasonable to think that your sleep need might be different in the winter than the summer. Yeah, I think that's fair too, yes. Uh, we don't have huge amounts of um, studies underpinning that statement, but I, I, th I think it's a perfectly reasonable assumption. But then we could go to what you said before, which is we don't need fancy tech to tell us about our sleep. We need to ask ourselves some simple questions. And therefore, yeah. if in the winter, in the summer, whatever your sleep amount is, if you're functioning well, if you have empathy, if no one's calling you moody, if you can <laughs> exactly. concentrate all day, yeah. you know, you may well be sleeping enough for you. Exactly. And, and it's also worth bearing in mind, we're not unique. We are just like every other kind of mammal. And mammal, all mammals have some form of biphasic or polyphasic sleep. They don't mm. sleep in a single block and their sleep-wake patterns expand and contract over the seasons. So it's not surprising that we show those trends as well. Temperature. Right. What's the relationship between temperature and sleep? Yeah, it's really interesting. So if we, if we, go, if we start with the circadian changes in temperature, uh, so, so we're told that temperature is about 37 degrees C. Um, but actually, if we go to the early morning, 
two, four o'clock in the morning, it's at its lowest point. And it might be as, as much as one degree below 37 degrees. So this is our body temperature. Our core body temperature, yeah. And then in anticipation of increased metabolic rate, uh, increased activity, our temperature is driven by the clock to start rising. And it rises and rises throughout the day. And then about six, seven o'clock in the evening, it begins to decline to that low point in the early hours of the morning. Now, what's critical is that that circadian-driven rhythm in temperature also impacts upon the sleep-wake cycle because that evening drop in core body temperature uh, seems to be a signal to initiate sleep. So part of the physiology of going to sleep involves a drop in core body temperature. And if you block that drop in core body temperature, it's much more difficult to go to sleep. So it's a really important part of our biology. And this, of course, is why hot showers and hot baths can be helpful before yeah. beds. I know this it's ironic, isn't it? You think yeah. you know, you've got to you've got to promote cooling, but you're doing it with a with a hot bath um, or warm bath. Um, and the reason, of course, is that what the warming of the bathwater does is to vasodilate, to expand the blood vessels in the hands and the arms and the legs and the feet, which means that blood is being shunted from the core, where it's hot, to the periphery, and that 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 heat is being lost to the outside. So that's why a, a warm bath can actually um, promote going to sleep, relaxing, of course, but also it's it's producing that, that helping produce that, that subtle drop in core body temperature. And again, that makes sense if we think about our evolution. Um, you know, we were living on the equator and presumably in the day it would be hot and presumably at night the sun would go in, it would be dropping temperature, right? So we've yeah. evolved under those conditions. Yeah. And so I guess these modern temperature-controlled houses, again, I can speak about Britain because that's where I live, in the winter with heating on, mm. I think... A lot of people don't realise that having the heating on in the bedroom, there's a balance, of course, but you can make it too hot. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, and, and there's some discussion about what's the optimum temperature for a bedroom. I suppose the consensus is about 18 degrees. Personally, I like it much cooler. I turn the heating off um, and sometimes even open the window, so I like it nice and cool. Um, uh, but a recent study sh showed that in elderly people, 65, 70 and older, that the optimum temperature for sleep was closer to 22 degrees. That's so quite a big change. It's a big change, yes. And I have to say the data surprised me. Uh, so, you know, everybody's different. You'll have to find, you know, what works for you. But of course, it's not simply the, the the temperature in the room. It's the sort of bedding you're using. And of course, whether it's an effective duvet with layers which are keeping keeping you warm or it's something much lighter and therefore you're going to lose heat. And and certainly, if it's too cold, you're more likely to wake up. Uh, so, so, yeah, you've got to get the balance right again with, as with everything. Uh, but yes, but ideally a slightly cooler bedroom temperature would be um, the best for promoting sleep. You mentioned Lux before, which of mm. course is a unit of light. Could you expand on Lux? Yep. You know, what, what exactly is it? And maybe give us some examples of the amount of lux we're often exposed to when yeah. we're either inside or outside. Yeah. So lux is a, an old measure of, of environmental brightness. And it's essentially calibrated to give you a sense of brightness as it would appear to a human observer. So the, 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 the response of the detector is not flat, meaning that it doesn't absorb all wavelengths equally. It actually mm. has a bell-shaped response, which peaks in the sort of greeny, 
greeny part of the spectrum at 555 nanometers, um, which, is, which is where humans are, are maximally sensitive to their daylight vision. Um, so uh, Lux comes in values. So if we think about um, the sort of a, a light that we'd see outside, uh, so shortly after dawn, on a clear day, you would have about 10,000 lux. By noon, that could get to 100,000 lux, even in Britain. No, you know, it's not And is common. it, do we just measure it as a static measurement or is it more, if you are outside on a sunny day in July in the UK for 10 minutes, you get X amount of lux. Yeah. If you're there for 20 minutes, you get Y amount of lux. Is it like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, it's, it's certainly additive. And, and of course, it's constantly fluctuating because of cloud cover uh, uh, and and whether you're moving inside or under a tree or whatever. So, But if you just took your lux meter out and you pointed it skyward, you could get up to 100,000 lux on a bright, bright sunny day. Most of the time, it's going to be something around 50,000, 60,000 lux. But as we go inside, this is where the big changes are occurring. So if you stand uh, on a reasonable sunny day uh, and you point the, the, the meter at the window, you could get between 3,000 lux and, and 1,000 lux. Walk two to three meters into the middle of the room and it's dropped to maybe as little as, as, as 100 lux. And why is that a problem? Well, or a potential problem. Well, yeah. Uh, and of course, the sorts of levels of light you're seeing in the evening would be something like 90 lux um, in, in most domestic settings. Even with bright kitchen well, LED lights it, on? It varies, of, of course, a lot. And, and kitchens now are, are very well illuminated. So that would be more. That would be four, 500, maybe even 600 lux. Mm. So uh, the sort of light you get from a Kindle, for example, on maximum setting would be 30 lux. So very low. So low, yeah. Uh, and, and so what does it all mean? Well, the circadian system requires relatively bright light over a, an extended period of time. And so there's a lot of controversy at the moment because sort of people have said, okay, well, in fact, domestic light setting, let's say 100 lux, will actually shift the clock but you have to have seven and a half hours of light exposure to get any effects. So it's a good example of where intensity and duration are being titrated and integrated by the circadian system. However, other more recent studies have shown that actually those low levels of light, even for seven hours or so, are completely abolished if you've seen relatively bright light during the day. So we said that dawn and dusk is sort of the most important times for shifting the clock, but the clock, is, the clock sensitivity is being gated by the sort of light exposure that you get during the day. So what these, these studies showed is that 500 lux or more during the day for four or five hours would actually abolish even subtle effects of dim light in the evening, which I think is really interesting. Okay, let me just try and summarise that to check I've got it right. So you're initially saying that essentially that the lux you will expose your eye to outside dramatically outweighs anything you could get inside. Broadly speaking, yeah. Broadly speaking, yeah. which is why getting outside, particularly in the morning, is so important to set the circadian rhythm. Exactly. And unless you use a light box, which is in the two to 10,000 range. Like yeah. you mentioned before in Northern exactly. Norway, yeah. what they're using. Exactly. Okay. 
Then you were saying there was some research, and I know you touched on this last time, I think it was the Harvard research, showing that actually light exposure in the evening will delay the clock, but it was seven hours plus. It was it was a longer... Well, well the, the particular experiment, um, individuals were exposed to a Kindle, brightest intensity, for five consecutive nights for four hours before bedtime. And that delayed sleep onset just statistically significantly by 10 minutes. Okay. So it had an effect, but it was a small effect. But what's so important is that the later studies showing that if you had reasonable levels of light during the day, abolished those small effects of reading a light-emitting e-book. Yeah, and this is something I became aware of maybe five, six years ago. I was reading some research that indicated that if you get a lot of light exposure in the day, it mitigates and insulates you from some of the negative impacts of light at night. And you're saying more exactly. research is now supporting that. Exactly, yes. So if you work outdoor, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. or you're able to um, get out, you know, for, a, I don't know, a one-hour walk at lunchtime. I know many mm-hmm. people in offices probably can't do that, but if you can walk to work, walk back from work, yep. assuming it's light outside. Yeah, get, get off the tube a bit earlier so you can extend or, that walk. Yeah. It's cumulative. The more light exposure you get in the day, the more it insulates you from nighttime light exposure. That's, I think, very empowering mm-hmm. because there is a lot of concern over nighttime light exposure. You also mentioned in our first conversation that light exposure in the evening may not delay the clock so much, but it increases alertness. Yeah, I really want to unpick that because a lot of people will report to me that when they're not looking at screens for, let's say, an hour before bed, and I've seen this in my own life, when I'm not, my sleep is much better. I fall asleep quicker and I'm more rested when I wake up. Yet some of this research is saying it may not be to do with the clock. That's right. Can you help so, us understand yeah. that? So, of course, light is critically important for regulating the circadian system, but light can have a direct alerting effect upon uh, the brain. And so we're not... Abs- it looks like lower levels of light can have an alerting effect that won't have such an effect upon the circadian system. So it still uh, could keep you up. It could, Yes, but it's not via shifting the clock. But it's very dis- difficult to disentangle because of the there's the light alerting effect. But if you're if you're working on a computer screen and you're, let's say, doing social media and you're being energized by emails and you're doing all that sort of stuff, that will also have an alerting effect. So in fact, relatively low levels of light and other activities that have an alerting effect on the brain could act synergistically. So I think the rule of thumb would be ideally don't use devices for 30 minutes and maybe an hour before bedtime for two reasons. One, it could have an alerting effect uh, upon the brain, but also because of the sorts of alerting effects that social media, emails and all that, and, and, and just thinking does if you're if you're if you're sitting in front of a computer screen and it's all part of the process of winding down as we discussed last time most people don't have a sleep problem they have an anxiety or a sleep issue and the more you can do to relax and wind down before that transition into sleep the the easier sleep will become you mentioned the kindle which seems to have um a very limited effect on the clock mm-hmm. might have an alerting effect but limiting effects on the clock what does TV do? And of course, there's a difference between the TVs yeah. of the 1980s and the big LED That's right. mega screens of today. Interestingly, we don't have 
uh, any really good studies on that. Um, that's, and, that's incredible, and, I know, isn't it? it is, it's extraordinary. And, and a lot of it is, is extrapolation from, from other, other sorts of studies. So what, what would a television screen produce? Well, the old tellies were producing something again in the order of, what, 50, 60 70 lux, but then you're the, 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 further, fur, away. the further away. And, and, and so actually the amount of light would be relatively low. What you're getting from a big LED screen, it's interesting. We should, we should try our Lux apps that we've loaded onto our phones earlier today and see what the LED screens are. Although I don't have one, unfortunately, so we can't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, but we don't have any really good studies. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's a very interesting question. I think there's a great citizen science project there. What about, you know, your iPhone? Um, or you, let, let's yeah. broaden it out, your smartphone or these modern laptops, which are really bright, have got very high contrast colours, which is often a selling point yeah. for these companies, right? Do we know what the well, Lux is doing there? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to AG1, one of the sponsors of today's show. So February is finally here and dare I say it, the mornings are just about getting a little bit lighter. I myself am getting quite excited that spring is just around the corner or perhaps I'm being a little bit optimistic. So how are you getting on with your health this year? Did you set some intentions at the start of the year or perhaps did you set yourself some goals? Well, no matter what you want out of life, good nutrition is going to help. Nutrition plays a role in our physical health, our mental well-being, but also how we feel day-to-day in terms of our energy, mood, and vitality. Now, I want to make it really clear. In an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I have been a medical doctor since 2001, and I have seen firsthand that many people struggle to do this despite their best intentions. And this is one of the main reasons why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. It's a science-driven formulation of 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. And the best thing is that all this goodness comes in one convenient daily serving. AG1 has been in my own life for over five years, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy, focus, gut health, digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. For listeners of this podcast, you can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more, that's drinkag1.com forward slash live more. Zoe, the personalized nutrition experts, are also sponsoring today's show. Now, Zoe is co founded by Professor Tim Spector, who has appeared on this podcast multiple times discussing all things related to foods. With their cutting edge science, Zoe helps you discover how to eat in the right way for your body. Their members are real advocates who've experienced benefits like having more energy, better digestion, and even improved moods. It all starts with an at-home test kit, which I have recently done. This tests your blood fat responses, your gut microbiome, and your blood sugar with a continuous glucose monitor. 
that helps you better understand which foods increase it and which foods result in it being more stable. With your results, Zoe will guide you to better health through their app and expert advice, all personalized to your body and completely backed by science. If you'd like to join me and start your own Zoe journey, then all you have to do is go to zoe.com and use my exclusive code LIVEMORE10 to get 10% off when you join Zoe. That's zoe.com and use the code LIVEMORE10. The problem that we have is that the circadian system response to light depends upon the intensity, the duration, the color, the wavelength, your light history, how old you are. And we don't have a really clear model about how this is integrated. So recommendations have been sort of kind of come to, but they're, they're, they're based upon many lab-based experiments. So, for example, there was one suggestion is that you shouldn't see more than 40 lux, which is really dim, for two hours before you go to bed. Now, that's extracted from from lab-based studies where, where people were not exposed to a natural light-dark cycle during the day, but kept in a lab under dim light mm. and then exposed to dim light in the evening. Um, furthermore, it would have been on youngish people. And it looks like the, 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 the clock of younger people is more sensitive than older people. And so I think we need to be really careful because yeah. I don't, don't think we should recommend elderly people should be wandering around in their homes under 40, 40 lux. That the, the chances of tripping and falling under those levels of light, I think, uh, uh, outweigh any, any potential benefit, particularly as the potential benefit isn't well founded in science. You mentioned there that children they are more sensitive to the effects of light. It seems so, yes. In the evening. Do we know the age category Not there? really, no. I mean, usually what's happened is that teenagers have been compared to 65-year-olds and 65-year-olds. And so we think teenagers are more susceptible. Yeah, and it, that, that might also be why the sleep-wake cycles are more easily disturbed because they are more sensitive to light. So again, the key experiments need to be done. So I want to come on to nighttime exposure in the evening I'm very passionate about what's going on in schools at the moment. We'll get to that. But perhaps a way of getting into this part of the conversation is this paper that was published in October 2023 in mm -hmm. Nature. It's called Day and Night Light Exposure are Associated with Psychiatric Disorders, an Objective Light Study in Greater Than 85,000 People. Mm. Now, can I just read a couple of lines from the abstract? Mm. Greater nighttime light exposure was associated with increased risk for major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and self-harm behavior. Okay, so greater nighttime light exposure is associated with all of those things. <laughs> and then it says, independent of nighttime light exposure, greater daytime light exposure was associated with reduced risk for major depressive disorder, PTSD, psychosis, and self-harm behavior, which speaks to some of the things yeah. you've, you've just yeah. been mentioning. And one of the conclusion lines was, avoiding light at night and seeking light during the day may be a simple and effective non-pharmacological means of broadly improving mental health. Yeah. Now that's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know this uh, paper very well. Perhaps you could comment on some of your thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, over a decade ago, we 
we're, we're talking about the influence of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption on uh, mental health and mental illness. And, and you know, we showed that, um, uh, led by Dan Freeman, a, a psychiatrist in, in, in Oxford, that if you could even partially stabilise the sleep-wake profile of individuals with insomnia and showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences partial stabilization of the sleep-wake profile using cognitive behavioral therapy, which of course is going to bed and getting up at the same time, eating at the same time, and of course that involves light exposure, um, would reduce paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And so what this paper has gone on, I think, really very elegantly to show is that, yeah, a stable, robust, light-dark cycle almost certainly improves circadian health and therefore sleep health and therefore mental health. So it's all part of the same package. Uh, and, and, I th and it's great. And, and I think this is, this is another really important way of showing that the sleep-wake cycle is a therapeutic target for mental illness. We should just, you know, use yeah. it much more effectively than we are at the moment. Now, also on a personal level, in my capacity as a medical doctor, I have seen at least twice, actually more, but two very clear cases, one I've spoken about before in this podcast, one I haven't, where adolescents mm. who were suicidal mm. significantly improved their well-being. And I, I mean significantly by reducing light exposure in the evening, mm -hmm. right? One of them in particular, it was two hours before bed. Yep. I said, look, let's really try, get off everything. Yes. Phone off, laptop off. The difference in mental well-being was marked. Yes, yes. And and studies have, have been, you know, would support that. And even uh, what I just read out there would, would kind of support that, where yeah. the increased nighttime light exposure was associated with, you know, in this case, suicidal ideation, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so really quite striking. And so I then think about the school system in this country. And before I, before I go into it, I, when I was reading your book yesterday, on page 314, <laughs> you say, it is perplexing that while there is raised awareness about the importance of sleep and the consequences of sleep disruption in the media, decision makers across all sectors of society have not done much about it, yeah. right? So obviously, yeah, this was published maybe a couple of years ago. 2002, yeah. Mm. Um, 2000, That's a, 2022, sorry. 2022, <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah. And so you would have you written it probably in 2021, right? Yeah. So yeah. what's interesting to me if I think about schools, and I'm very passionate about this because my kids are 13 and 11. Mm. And what I've noticed, not just in my children's schools, but when I talk to other parents, is that there has been, since COVID, where homeschooling came in and Google Classroom came in on a huge scale, mm. now lots of schools are giving homework to their kids, sometimes quite a long, uh, quite a significant amount of homework, all on screens. Mm. Now, in medicine, I've always adopted the precautionary principle which is when something new comes in, let's just be very cautious before we start introducing it. We've already mentioned that light could be considered as powerful as a drug. Mm. I've mentioned how I've seen two suicidal adolescents dramatically improve their mental well-being by reducing nighttime light exposure. 
So I have a concern with this widespread adoption of homework in the evenings on screens. And actually, Russell, there was a question from one of um, somebody who had our first conversation. Mm. They emailed my website to say, if you have Russell Foster on again, please can you ask them what I can do? This is a, a GCSC and A-level biology teacher. What can I do to help my children live and exist better in harmony with their circadian rhythm? So I think this is kind of related to this. Mm. Do you think we should be this blasé about widespread use of children being on screens doing homework in the evening, or do you think we should be a little bit more cautious? I think we should absolutely be more cautious. It strikes me that the educational sector is is what happened to the business sector, you know, 20 years ago uh, or more, which is you squeeze more and more and more into an overpacked day and therefore you invade the night. And of course, the demands the educational demands on our young people is extraordinary. You know, pressurised by metrics of schools and they've got to do well and all the rest of it. And um, it's, I think, to some degree, that personal well-being is is being sacrificed as a result. We should allow... I mean, the one thing we know about sleep is that it enhances our ability to not only memorize facts, but actually come up with innovative solutions to complex problems. And by packing masses and masses into the evening and reducing the opportunity to relax and sleep, yeah. we're actually impeding the one thing that we want to enhance, which is which is our ability of our brains to function. Yeah. And I don't think that message has got clearly into, this, into the educational no. sector. And I really... I really feel passionately about this. And and look, I'm not a teacher, right? So I, I want to reiterate what I always say, which is I really have so much respect for teachers. Absolutely. I'm sh- I'm sure like all professions, they're trying to do the best that they can. Co- absolutely. But yeah. sometimes what happens is that you just get swept in the tide of what's happening around you. Mm. And often you find no one's actually given this any thoughts. Mm. And I actually would like to start maybe a national campaign on this in some in some way to go, listen, guys, let's just be cautious. Sure, technology is coming into the workplace. You may feel that it's important to teach kids about technology. Okay, maybe do that in the day. Maybe do that in the mornings at school. Mm -hmm. Let's not get our kids having loads of light exposure in the evenings. Because also, Russell, what happens, and I give talks at schools. So often when I go and present all this research, a lot of it your research, I present the guidelines from these organizations and then they contact me afterwards or send me DMs on Instagram and they mm. say, Dr. Chachi, I get all that, but the school is making it impossible yes. because Johnny goes to football practice after school. Mm. School's half an hour away. By the time he comes back and has had dinner, he's going to be on his screen all the way until bedtime or he yeah. can't get his homework done. Yeah. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I actually think we could be setting off a ticking time bomb here I'm biased because I've seen two suicidal patients in the past Mm. in this teenage adolescent age group. And I really would love schools to go, okay, look, I get it. We're bringing in technology, but what do we want from our kids? We want concentration, focus, empathy, problem solving. We want all those things. To get all those things, you need good quality sleep. Yeah. And the duration of sleep, of course, in young people, you know, I know I don't like averages, but it is certainly longer than the eight hours that adults are recommended to have. It's We're, not yeah. possible in the school day. If you measure it out, I've done this with parents. Yeah. 
actually, unless some schools change their approach to technology in the evening, I think it's impossible for some children to not be on their screens in the lead up to bedtime. Yeah, we do need to think about ways in which um, we can mitigate some of these issues. Yeah, uh, look, every industry, uh, and I guess we could call education an industry, although it doesn't sit that well with me, Mm. has got its own metrics, right? It's got its own levels. um, It's got its own performance metrics, which it is assessing. Yeah. Now, let's argue, let's say that a teacher or a school thinks that, look, it's very important that our children are up to speed with technology because all the jobs require it. Let's say that's the case they're making. Then we need the wider question, which is, okay, if the cost of meeting those metrics is that, some of our children now suffer with severe mental health problems. And let me just read out that line again. Greater nighttime light exposure was associated with increased risk of all of these kind of psychiatric problems. Including self-harm. Including self-harm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a difficult answer (laughs) to me at least, and I'm a doctor, so I'm biased as well, which is if the cost is poor mental health, well, I would say that price is too high to pay. So what I would love, and I've, I'm, I'm going to try and do this with some schools, is actually have a really open discussion and go, okay, what are your challenges? What are you trying to do? How can we mitigate this? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's, we give the homework on screens, but we also give guidance and say, listen, guys, do what you can, but really 60, 90 minutes before bed, we'd encourage you to reduce it. Or when you're doing this, turn the light down on your screens Mm -hmm. or give an option because if you are a proactive family who wants to reduce uh, light exposure in the evening for an alertness standpoint and a circadian clock standpoint, well, you're kind of taking the option away from me by giving my children homework on their screens. Yeah. Yeah. When should be the cutoff? And I think the debate has to involve an engagement with the students, with the teachers, and of course the parents. So a few years ago, we, 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 we developed some educational materials for schools. And part of that was a leaflet, um, which was sort of trying to give guidelines for parents about how they should prioritise sleep. And what was on that leaflet? Oh, it was basically, you know, trying to restrict um, social media use, regular bedtimes. One of the things that emerged rather chillingly from that discussion is that we asked the, and these are early teens, um, does, do, you slow, do you share your sleeping space? Do you, do you share your bedroom with, with anybody else? Um, what we didn't ask is, do you have a bed? And what emerged from this group who were socioeconomically deprived was that a, a chunk of them didn't have a bed. They didn't have a bedroom, of course. And their sleep consisted of trying to sleep on the family sofa while the family were watching TV. So I think this is, raises a very mm. important point in, in the educational sector because these kids were then going to school the next day, chronically sleep deprived. They can't then take advantage of their educational opportunities and are already being socially marginalised because they're being deprived of a decent education because they're being deprived of a good night of, of sleep at night. And and I think that's... So, so 
So we, poor sleep is is the hallmark of poverty, I think, in many sectors, mm. but not least our young people. And, and, and we see, as we've discussed, the spectrum from terrible sleep because there's no bedroom, there's no bed, to essentially over over stimulating, over pressurizing our young people to get the grades. And, and as I say, I think the analogy with the business sector 20, 30 years ago is squeezing more and more and more into an already overpacked day, yeah. overpacked syllabus. And, and maybe the debate should be, okay, let's step back. What do we really want to prioritize and when do we want to prioritize it? And, and the, the problem is, they say, oh, well, the easy thing is you you cut out music or you cut out, you know, non-maths, non-English, yeah, non-science. And that also I, I find offensive um, because you know, we live in a, a glorious civilization which has contributed to every human endeavor. And whilst I clearly see the value of the sciences and maths and English, we can't ignore yeah. those other things. So it's a really difficult discussion. I don't know how we do it, but it's a debate that we really need to have. I guess business deals with adults. Why I'm so passionate about this is because it's about children. Mm. And children are more sensitive to light. The mental health rates in children. I mean, you cover it in your book, you know, that I think it was US research you quoted that the increasing rates of mental health dysfunction in adolescents in US it has been shown to be a cause of great concern. Mm. I know when I'm at my son's bus stop in the morning, most kids are yawning. Yeah. Right. Again, you can yawn for a variety of reasons, but we know that sleep is going uh, down. I think also something for schools to consider is that for many kids, their downtime these days is on screens as well, whether it be on an Xbox, mm. a PlayStation. So therefore, if light exposure is cumulative and the more you have off it, the more impact it may have on your clock, it's going to have an impact on your alertness, but it may also push your clock back. It's like, well, should schools, of course, parents have to do that, you know, parents have to do what they feel is right for their children. But at the same time, I kind of feel homework going into screens is just increasing that accumulation of light exposure at a time when our biology actually doesn't want it. Yes. Well, somewhat tangentially, of course, there's some very interesting studies emerging, um, particularly from Asian countries like Singapore, uh, which has shown that myopia, short-sightedness, is hugely on the rise. Um, and now there's a very clear correlation between levels of outside light exposure and the incidence of myopia. And these children in particular don't see much natural light. The, the pressure that's on them to succeed means that they're inside working on their television, uh, so they're inside working on their computer screens, uh, essentially every free moment. Uh, and, and so there are other consequences uh, the, the, yeah. the, the, than just circadian rhythm disruption. I, I read some research suggesting there was a correlation between if you get under two hours of natural light exposure a day, you're your risk of myopia goes up yes. significantly. Is that absolutely yes? Yeah. I was at a, me at a meeting just recently, a talk for just recently, and uh, some fascinating studies. <laughs> this is a real, real tension in Australia because um, you know you need to get the kids outside into the light, but of course in Australia and in New Zealand where the ozone layer you know is is somewhat depleted, uh, particularly in the south, you know there's greater incidence of ultraviolet light and the risk of skin cancer. And one of these studies showed that the uh, 
lower rates of myopia were, were noted in individuals with skin cancer. Wow. Uh, so, so you, you know, yeah, get the kids outside, but make sure that they're um, they're they're suitably protected with hats and and, and sunscreen. Let's play devil's advocate for a minute. What if someone's hearing that and going, okay, so the downside of not having enough natural light exposure or one of the downsides is myopia, short-sightedness. So my kid has to wear glasses. So what? Yeah, I suppose, so what? Um, on I'm, the, I'm not saying that. I'm just putting yeah, it there. Yeah. Like, what, what, why, why is that a problem? I mean, look, as someone who's well, worn glasses and contact lenses the whole life, I really wish I didn't have to. Let's yes. put it like that. Well, I think it's suggesting that that our biology has evolved to to to, to actually need suitable light exposure, natural yeah. light exposure. And so, what what those data, what, what those observations are, sh- are showing us is that we're not getting the light that we need. That's impacting upon eye health at some level. Yeah. And of course, these changes in one's ability to focus can have other sorts of effect. So, for example, retinal detachment and other other mm. implications. So I don't think it's just a matter of wearing glasses, but it's other stuff as well. And and things that we're probably really just becoming aware yeah. of. So it's probably more of a of a of a shot across the bow saying, hang on, team. Yeah. You know, let's just step back and think about what we're doing here. Um, because this parameter's been affected. Chances are other parameters will be too. To finish off the the children's part of this discussion, in terms of teachers who are thinking about practical things they can maybe introduce straight away, I imagine one conclusion from what you're saying is that encouraging your kids to get outside Mm -hmm. during the day at lunchtime, at break, not keeping, in inverted commas, naughty kids inside (laughs) as a punishment. To make them naughtier. (laughs) To make them naughtier. It might be counterproductive. Yes. Maybe because I know in a lot of um, a lot of secondary schools, a lot of high schools, because I know this from chatting to, to a lot of these children that there's such a pressure of homework that at lunchtime they go to the library so that they get ahead. Yes, and then what's that doing? It's eroding. I know. It's eroding. Yeah, light exposure in the day. Yeah. So, so I so- guess schools could immediately start to go. Okay, we need to at least in assemblies. We need um, across you know, all the lessons, be encouraging our kids. Even if schools start to educate their kids, say, we're giving you all this stuff, but look, get outside in the day, get outside at lunchtime. Mm. Even that may make a difference. And have a cutoff of computer use in the evenings. Yeah. And you need to wind down two hours before um, your bedtime. Okay. And, and, and whatever that is, and maybe that's the time that you could listen to some music that you love, you could read the novels that you love, yeah. or whatever it takes, whatever young people like to do before they go to sleep. I'm, I'm too old to remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, about, it's not about squeezing more and more and more into this overpacked day. It's about stepping back. It's about, I don't know, embracing the broader values of life. The teacher who wrote into me also wanted to know what your chronotype is. Are you happy to share it? Yeah, I, I of course, chronotype changes as you age, but I was a very late chronotype. Um, so you like to lie in and I, I, I would go to bed late and get up late where at all possible. As you age, of course, you get up 
earlier. So it's quite noticeable. I mean, I, 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 this week I've had to get up early twice. And if I'd have had to have done that even 10 years ago, it, I would, I feel utterly wretched. But I, so, so, but, but by, yeah, I'm, I'm by default a later chronotype. Um, but, um, and, and did struggle a bit when I was younger. Um, but uh, now it's become easier. So that's something for, Late chronotypes to look forward to as you age, <laughs> along with a fat tongue. Um, <laughs> this is get, wonderful. Yeah, you get an earlier chronotype. <laughs> let's move on to sleep aids. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about sleeping pills. Let's talk about magnesium. Let's talk about melatonin. These yeah. are things that people commonly use either by themselves or they're prescribed by their doctor. What's your take on them? If we look at the biology first of all, then these sleep aids, largely speaking, um, hit the GABA system. So GABAaminobutyric acid, it's a neurotransmitter which acts to inhibit the actions of the central nervous system. So we've got all of these excitatory neurotransmitters which increase alertness, increase the stress axis and all the rest of it. And what GABA does is turn that down. So you mentioned the word neurotransmitter. For anyone yeah. who doesn't understand that, can you just put yeah. that in layman's terms? So we have neurons and they talk to each other via synapses and chemical synapses involve the release of a neurotransmitter at those junctions, which then stimulate the next neuron down so, the chain. So chemicals in the brain to yeah. send messages between nerve cells. Yeah. And GABA is one example. Can you give us examples so, and, of others? And GABA is one of the ones which actually reduces that transmission. So it, it calms it, things down. It calms things down. Yeah. And so, for example, the benzodiazepines, Valium, or the Z drugs, um, uh, Zopiclone, um, they actually act by promoting. Uh, in, increasing the sensitivity of the GABA systems, which means that you're you're sort of turned down. So you're reducing excitatory neurotransmitter so, release. Okay, so GABA is a calming neurotransmitter. What are examples of neurotransmitters that do the opposite, that excite us? Oh, oh just about everything else. I mean, so so yeah, the, the elements of the, the of the sympathetic nervous system. So adrenaline, adrenaline cortisol. cortisol. Yeah, the, exactly. Yes. Um, so they would be uh, all excitatory. Okay. And, and of course, we have those projections from from the hindbrain called the excitatory arousal system, which is this 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 whole system that is bathing the the cortex, that, that bit of the brain for consciousness in excitatory neurotransmitters. Okay, so GABA calms things down. So mm -hmm. if we can enhance GABA, we can help to switch things off in the brain, which in theory is going to help promote sleep. So sedation is not the same as sleep. So although it's working on a similar pathway, so, so sleep does involve a, 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 a wind, you know, an increase in the, in the GABA systems and a winding down of the excitatory systems, but it's a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And you can think of um, benzos and, and, and Z drugs as being a hammer hitting the conscious centers of the brain. So you're not providing a biological, a complete biological mimic for sleep. And in fact, some of these drugs can, um, benzos in particular, can actually reduce memory consolidation and the formation of, of, of new ideas in response to, to complex sort of questions. Wow. So, so and, and of course, the, the, the sedative that we've used 
since time immemorial is alcohol. So one of the th reasons people love alcohol is because it has a calming effect. And so you think, yeah, great, that's fantastic. But of course, alcohol, when it's broken down, um, produces a whole bunch of sort of aldehydes. And of course, they're extremely toxic. And of course, that's associated with all the metabolic failure that you get associated with excessive alcohol consumption. So, so people have developed a sort of mimics of alcohol, which give you the, the, the GABA effects, the calming effects, but it's not, uh, not converted into um, some of these, these um, acetaldehydes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of prescription medications, yeah. you mentioned benzos and Z drugs. So some people may know, you know, examples like temazepam yeah. or zopiclone. These yeah. are things that are commonly prescribed by physicians to help their patients sleep. Yeah, and short-term use, of course, as you'll know, uh, can be very useful. Okay, let's say someone's listening to this and they take Zopiclone each night and it helps them nod off, whatever that means. Mm. If you were to put them in a sleep lab, right, and you were to compare what goes on in their brain when they've taken a pharmaceutical like Zopiclone compared to when they've fallen asleep naturally without that, mm. Would you see a difference? You would see a difference, yes. Um, not a huge difference, but you would see a, 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 a difference. The problem is that our, our metrics of sleep using EEG are pretty crude. Mm. I mean, you think about it. It's, it's a cumulative changes in the, in the brain's electrical activity. Frankly, it's extraordinary that we can identify any different states of <laughs> non-REM 1, 2, 3 and REM sleep. So you, you will see some subtle differences, but not huge differences. Um, but the use of these drugs is correlated with deficits in cognitive performance the following day. And long-term use has an increased risk of dementia, right? Absolutely. And in, and in fact, in individuals with dementia, uh, it's not recommended that these um, drugs are used because it causes excessive daytime sleepiness, and that can be a, a, a real problem as well. So I think uh, my position would be, and I'm not a clinician, but on the basis of the, the papers that I've read, short-term use Yes, that's fine. Let's say a week or so to correct, let's say, a really difficult time. Let's say you're struggling with emotional issues. There's yeah. been some bereavement in the family. Um, then you might want to just have a short-term uh, correct. Um, but then uh, either ease out or um, yeah. uh, uh, try and then use the cognitive behavioral therapies for sleep light exposure, winding down, all those sorts of things that we talked about last time and they're, that are in, in lifetime. Just to, um, I guess, stand up for clinicians for a moment. What often happens is the clinician's desire is to give it as a short-term tool. Yes, that's my understanding too, yeah. But then what you'll often see is a patient found it useful. And then seven days later, when they're there for their repeat consultation, yeah. it can be quite a difficult discussion because... Often, yeah. not always, of course, every situation is unique, but often the patient's like, well, listen, I just, it was so good. It really helped me. I just want it for a bit more. And I think clinicians can, especially if the consultation is time limited. Yes. And I've been in many of these tricky con consultations before where it's just really hard and a patient can often feel hard done by yeah. if you don't re-prescribe it. And, well, and, and then they become anxious and they don't sleep. Yeah, so it, yeah. it, it is quite complex. Yeah. Let's talk about magnesium. Magnesium mm. is seen as a natural sleep aid. What happens? Yeah, and the data are emerging which suggests that magnesium may indeed be useful as a sleep aid. Mm. Um, it's still not 
absolutely solid, but but there are some studies, some correlation studies, which have given uh, additional magnesium, and and there's been a statistical difference, a st- statistical improvement of sleep. And interestingly, magnesium is thought to act on those GABA receptors in in you know enhancing GABA responsiveness. And of course, anything that reduces anxiety and in, and produces more of a lack a relaxed state can be useful in getting yeah, to and, sleep. And magnesium, of course, many of us call it the relaxation mineral. Yeah. And so I have used it effectively with many, many patients when you get that sense from them that, yeah, everything's a bit tight, yes. right? There's, they're wound up, like yeah. even the bowel is tight, right? They're mm. constipated. Mm. All these things, you start to build up a picture. Oh, maybe mm. magnesium might yeah. be helpful. And of course... I don't know if you're familiar with the research on different forms of magnesium or not. Well, I know that uh, depending upon the rates of absorbance can be, so the formulation is quite important as I understand it. For sure, because some work particularly well on the gut and can help with constipation. Um, Others are more helpful for sleep. But you're basically saying that, yes, the data seems to support that magnesium for some people can be useful. I think that's, that's a very fair statement, yes. And I have to say, I was, I was suspicious to begin with. And then I looked at the, the published papers and I've become convinced that, yes, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting avenue. Um, so, yes, I'm, I think magnesium could be very useful under certain circumstances, yes. Melatonin. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yes, here, so what here, is- here we go. All right, what is melatonin? Melatonin <laughs> is this neurohormone produced from the pineal gland which is a pea-sized structure right in the middle of the brain. Descartes said the pineal was the source of the soul. It was the seat of the soul because it was, it's one of the only unpaired structures within the brain. Most, most, of, you know, most bits of the brain have a, have a twin, as it were. Um, but, What's your take on that? Is it the seat of the soul? <laughs> I, well, I, I think it would be fair to say that the pineal has no soul function. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, so, Not just so, a scientist, a comedian as well, Russell. <laughs> so, so, so the circadian system and the light-dark cycle regulates via the sympathetic nervous system the release of melatonin from the pineal. And the release of melatonin is confined to the dark period of the light-dark cycle. So um, as as dusk approaches, melatonin levels will rise. They'll peak at around about four o'clock in the morning on average, and then they'll decline in anticipation of dawn. So there's a circadian-driven rhythm in melatonin, and it's modified by the light-dark cycle directly. So if you turn the lights on in the middle of the night, you can acutely suppress melatonin as well. Which is why it's problematic to do so. Let's say you're going to biphasic sleep, you're up at 3am. Is that a problem to have bright light exposure? Um, Well, it'll increase alertness, but the alerting effects um, occur before you change the melatonin. So it is not the melatonin mm. that is driving those changes in alertness. Okay. And, and so that's, what we, that's the biology of melatonin. Let's discuss its role where we know it's important. Um, and so that's in seasonally breeding mammals. So as the day lengths expand and contract for a, sh- a small mammal, let's say a hamster, then the, then the um, increasing day lengths trigger the reproductive system and, and, you, and you trigger reproduction. And that's associated and is driven by uh, a decreased profile of, of melatonin release. Mm-hmm. Now for sheep, 
and deer and animals like that. They use the expanding night lengths during the autumn to trigger their reproduction because, of course, they have a long gestation, which means that the, they, 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 they mate and then the, then the offspring are produced the next spring when there's lots of new um, mm. production. So the expanding and contracting melatonin profile uh, is a beautiful reflection of the seasons, and that signal is used by seasonal mammals to regulate their reproduction and other processes as well. That's, that's clear. That's beautiful biology, which has been well, well documented. What's it doing in humans? It's often called a sleep hormone. And it is most emphatically not a sleep hormone. Uh, so individuals who are on beta blockers, for example, produce very little melatonin. Uh, individuals who are quadriplegic and have severed those connections from the brain into the pineal um, uh, have poor sleep, but it's no worse than um, paraplegic individuals who have that pathway intact. So the evidence suggests that, yes, you can have a perfectly reasonable sleep-wake profile in the absence of melatonin. Mm. What melatonin does is probably um, have a mild modulatory effect. The most efficacious study showed that taking three milligrams of melatonin before bedtime could reduce the time it takes to get to sleep by around about 20 minutes or so. So yes, it can have a mild moderatory effect. Um, it won't keep you asleep. Uh, so, so, so we shouldn't be thinking of it as a, as, as a sleep home at all. It's a biological marker of the dark. And it's also probably enhancing the effects of light on the clock. So light comes in, sets the clock, then melatonin is produced at night and it's reinforcing a light signal. And so it's also been used, for example, in jet lag. So there's some evidence that taking melatonin at local bedtime in the new time zone can speed up the rate at which you can lock on to the new time zone. So it has an effect on the clock. It's having an effect on the clock and it also seems to be having an effect upon the sleep-wake systems, but a mild effect. One area of action, which is really interesting, and we go back to sleep, and we talked about that drop in core body temperature. One idea is that melatonin released at night is, is actually causing that vasodilation, those, that expansion of the blood vessels in the, in the hands and the feet and the arms, and, and pr promoting that loss wow. of heat. And so that may be one way that melatonin is making it easier to get off to sleep. But, but, but it's, it's still... I mean, I th I'm fairly much pers persuaded by those data, but we do need a bit more. So a mild modulator of sleep, it is not a sleep hormone. I've also heard melatonin has antioxidant effects. Well, yes, it does, um, as, but it's no more effective than vitamin C. And so, you know, 20 years ago, it was, people were saying, ah, the reason why uh, children using nightlights, um, uh, we've seen a doubling of childhood leukemia since the 1950s, is because everybody's turning nightlights on and that's suppressing melatonin at, light, at night and, and uh, that's, that's um, uh, taking away an antioxidant and all that. Nonsense, absolute nonsense, because the level of light you get from a, uh, from a nightlight is too low to suppress melatonin. Just to take a quick aside there from melatonin, children's nightlights, hmm. many kids want to have a light on at night. Um, in your view, should we be careful? Of course, you probably don't want it as bright. You want it as dim as possible. What about different colors like a red light? I know when my children were young, 
we put a red light there that seemed to make a pretty marked difference compared to yeah. a white light. Yes. So perhaps you could speak to that? Yeah, I think low levels of light and night light, if it's comforting for the child, is perfectly fine. Um, and, and, and these lights are really low. I mean, the, the old um, night lights would produce one or two lux, which is terribly low and is, is enough. It's a good, good illustration that it's enough to sort of be aware for the visual system to sort of kind of function, but it's not going to have an effect upon the clock. Melatonin is often used in paediatric clinics uh, for children. What's your sort of well, take on that? There's nothing else. That's the problem. Um, and a melatonin has also been used uh, in the case of the blind. So if you have no eyes or no functioning eyes, you've lost those specialised cells within the eye that are regulating the clock, um, you've lost your eyes, uh, then you're drifting through time constantly. So you're not only visually blind, but you're time blind as well. And so melatonin has been used uh, to try and stabilise the sleep-wake profile. So yeah, I, I, we don't have anything else. It's been the only, yeah. the only drug. What's your take on the idea that we set the clock through our exposure to light, not just through the eye. Some people say that you can also set it, or there was some talk in the past, I think, from light on the skin, a light in other areas. I believe there was one trial Ooh. that was then not replicated again. Oh, what, what, yes. What's, well, what's this, the latest is, with that? Yeah. So, Because um, some of these myths kind of it, they stick won't go around. Away. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there was a paper published in Science in about, I think it was 98, 1998, uh, suggesting that light behind the knee uh, could be used to set the body clock. Um, and this was published, as I say, in leading journal, peer-reviewed, um, and it could not be replicated by any other lab. Um, and we don't quite know what happened, but uh, and I don't want to speculate, but, but basically the, the experiment was profoundly flawed. So there is... Currently, no way you can set the clock with light exposure outside the eyes. So in theory, in theory, if one could uh, sleep in a room full of lights, but you had an eye mask on that we could measure stopped all light coming into your eyes, in theory, you could have a sound night's sleep. Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, but, but of course, in theory, we, we don't have to talk about theory. I mean, if you're given a light-dark cycle and your eyes are covered, you won't entrain to that light-dark cycle. You'll drift through time. So you have to have light exposure via the eye. Now, I'm not saying that there may well be in the future some, yeah. some receptor somewhere. Sure. Um, but at the moment, we know that eye loss or covering the eyes means you can't entrain I get it. Things may change in the future. And of course, I, I'm not sure any of us want to wear an eye mask and have a brightly lit room just to try and prove a point. <laughs> Unless they're in one of your experiments. But it's been done, yeah. <laughs> but it has been done. And, and therefore, would you but, say... But I, I should say, I mean, when we were... I remember when um, we had a grant into one of the funding bodies... You know, and these are the early days we were looking for these novel receptors within the eye, these non-rod, non-cone, photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And uh, I remember the grant went down. It was just blitzed. And one of the comments is, why is Foster looking for a novel receptor in the eye when we know it's behind the knee? <laughs> so I'm not bitter. <laughs> well, but, but I was completely shocked. And it's still there. I mean, it's, it's, still, it's, it's still in some textbooks. Yeah, and, and that, I think... You know, we mentioned humility before in this conversation. I think we all 
need to adopt a bit of humility in terms of what we know and what we might know in the future. Because I remember so well in our first conversation, you basically saying that in 1987, you were at a conference talking about light being one of the main ways to entrain our circadian rhythm, and it was almost laughed off. Oh, well, w because I was saying that it's not the visual system, it's not the rods and cones detecting this light, there's something else in the eye. And, and as I may have said last time, you know, the, the comments were, we've been studying the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us, you young pup, uh, that uh, we've missed an entire <laughs> class of photoreceptor? Of course, I was young, full of vigour. I said, yes, and these are the data. Um, it really does help to be young if you want to say something yeah. new. Yeah, no, and, and it's... <laughs> So we all need a bit of humility about what we may not know yet. So oh, I think absolutely. That's, that's oh, important. Yeah, and, and how things might change. But, you know, the data's the data. Um, and, and what we accumulated was 10 years of absolutely, you know, solid data showing it's got to be something else okay. in the eye. Just to finish off melatonin, mm. um, there is a concern often being expressed that if you are taking melatonin long-term it will suppress your body's own natural endogenous production. Is that within your expertise? Do you know much about that? It's not that? really within my expertise, but I don't think that's likely to be the case. I, I don't think, I think it will be additive rather than suppressive, okay. unlike, you know, most other systems which have a feedback loop and, and, and they would turn it off. I think it's because of the way melatonin works is that it's not secreted, it's released. So the pineal is generating melatonin and because it's so lipid permeable, it just spreads, you know, into the brain, into mm. the cerebral spinal fluid and every everywhere. Um, so it may well, there may well be a feedback loop, but I'm not aware of it, actually. Okay. Something that often affects people as they get older, it affects their sleep, is the need to pee at night. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so often asked about this. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your initial thoughts about that? Well, there's, there's a couple of things going on here. One is that as we age, the amplitude, the strength, if you like, of the circadian drive becomes diminished. So sleep-wake cycle becomes less robust. It's, it, it's sort of, it's a bit more wobbly. But that's also true for the release of many hormones which are under circadian regulation. Can I just pause you yeah. there a second, Russell? Do we know that that sleep-wake cycle becomes less robust as we get older because that's how we're programmed or because of what we do? Is it environmental? You know, as we get yeah. older, are we going out less? Are we getting less of those environmental inputs? Yes, and it's, it's a very good point because, of course, um, it may well be that because the circadian response to light diminishes as we age, then light that we could you know, normally drive the, the circadian system uh, earlier in our lives is not as effective. And, and so if you increase the amount of light, for example, in the nursing home environment, you can increase the, 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 the stability of the sleep-wake. And, and what Aus von Sommeren showed is that when you do increase the light in a nursing home, you not only improve sleep, but you can improve cognition in those individuals showing mild dementia. I think that's a really important point, Russell, and one we should just pause on because whether we have parents in nursing homes or they're living by themselves in the house or whatever it might be, paying attention to light exposure in the day, even if they're not going outside, you're basically saying, put the lights on, get it really bright in the day. That's going to help sleep yeah. and cognition. Yes, absolutely. Well, what's interesting is that uh, architects are getting this. 
that it's really then they're responding beautifully oh. so the people designing modern nursing homes and and buildings generally are not relying on artificial light to light but is actually as much as possible letting natural light in yeah. and and in fact there's now a, there's an award called the daylight award for architects who've actually shown that in their building design they've enhanced uh, the exposure to natural light I um, love that. it's brilliant it's fantastic and i'm i'm on i'm on actually the, the jury to select these prizes and 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 so it's i've learned so much about what architects are doing and the and how they value light in fact there's a there's an architect called ian ritchie and he says the first principle of architecture is natural light isn't that brilliant Hmm. i love that you you can almost retire now go my work is done right that's wonderful isn't it because that actually is such a serious and such an important point if more and more buildings work buildings home buildings, blocks of flats, nursing homes, hospitals, whatever it might be, were designed with natural light at the heart of them, you're probably immediately going to have an improvement in physical health, mental health, cognition, all kinds of things without even having to do anything. So there's a very interesting set of studies done about 20 years ago, uh, which looked at different schools and measured the amount of light the pupils were being exposed to, and then correlated that with grades. Um, And the greater the light uh, in the classroom, the higher the success in in terms of grades. I love that. And then I think about all the research Mm. on exposure to nature and what that does to lowering cortisol and our well-being. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, you know, when you're in nature, you've been exposed to light, Mm -hmm. right? So it's hard to pass out what's the difference between looking at a tree in a dark place versus in a a light uh, park, let's say, but all the data is supporting. It's all kind of saying the same thing. Get outside as much as you can. Again, yes, light. Okay, let's go back to peeing at night. Yes, so, oh yes, we, we got deflected there, yes. As per usual. <laughs> so we were talking about the circadian system um, and that the circadian drive, the amplitude becomes flatter. So that means that the sleep-wake cycle is less robust, it's less strongly driven. But we also said that, of course, if you can increase light exposure, you can sort of kick it in and you can increase the drive. Um, but, but it's still going to diminish to some extent. Uh, And that's also true for the hormones that are under circadian regulation. And the hormones regulating urine production are under circadian regulation. Of course, they're high during the day when we're moving around and we want to pee, and they're low at night when we're asleep and we ideally shouldn't pee. And that that difference becomes slightly blurred. So the hormonal drive underlying urine production is not as precise as we age. So we're more likely to want to pee at night. The other thing, of course, if we're on uh, antihypertensives, they can also uh, make you want to pee at night uh, more readily. Um, But another thing that is so fascinating, particularly in elderly individuals who are sedentary, you know, they're sitting in a chair all day, and at the end of the day you look down, there's puffy ankles, swollen lower limbs. And, of course, fluid blood has collected in the lower limbs. Now, when you lie flat, that is then reintegrated into the body. That increases blood Mm. pressure. The heart detects that increase in blood pressure and triggers the production of urine. And so actually just by lying down after a 
a day of sitting and, you know, you're probably slightly hypertensive, um, you can generate a litre of urine. So that's why it's so important for the elderly not to sit in day and to move around as, they, as much as they possibly can to prevent that sort of settling of fluid in the lower limbs. Yeah, it's, it's super, super interesting. I think for many years, we would often put down, particularly in men, if they were having problems, we would often say, after doing investigations and tests and examinations, that it was down to the prostate yeah. getting bigger, something called BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia, so not cancer, yep. just a benign um, mechanism. You can't void as much as you, you need to. Yeah, yes, and so the pressure of that would yeah. cause that urge. Mm. I think you're also saying that the sleep... Um, the depth of sleep might be lower as you're older, so you're going to be aware of that more. That's right. I mean, you 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 might become sort of conscious, and then you are sense that your bladder's full, and then you, you then then you go and pee. But it's not necessarily the bladder waking you up. Uh, it's just that you have lighter sleep, and then you become more aware that you need to, to pee. There, there was a nice paper. I think it was 2018 called "Circadian Rhythms in the Kidney." Mm. And it was one of the first times I came across this idea that, you know, I knew about circadian clocks and that every organ system is running on its own clock. And that paper, I think, was saying that for the first 10 hours after waking, that kidneys are filtering fluid at a really rapid rate. Then after mm. 10 hours, it goes down dramatically. Yeah. And when you think about that, and I was actually chatting about this literally a few days ago, a friend of mine um, who's, I think, in the mid-50s. He has to get up at 4 a.m. for his work, and he's really struggling with his sleep and getting up multiple times in the night. Mm. And he's been to see his doctor. I think all kinds of investigations have been done, but I don't think there's anything that, that's come up. And I was rereading this paper recently, and so I said to him, hey, listen, you get up at 4 a.m., so... That means if we're to believe that your filtration system in your kidneys is working as per this paper on the circadian system, that actually that means by 2 p.m., right, things are starting to shut down. Yeah. How much fluid are you drinking after 2 p.m.? Turns mm. out a load of fluids, yeah. uh, cups of tea, maybe uh at the evening meal with his family at about 5, 5.30. He would also go to bed early at 7, half 7, because he had to be up. Yep. So I said, listen, you might want to try really being mindful after 2 p.m. He goes, that early? I said, well, look, it's worth a try. Yes. I think it's going to make a difference. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's yes. going to make a massive difference mm. because this of the circadian system, right? Yeah. And, and of course, we, we talked about changes in those hormones under pinning um, urine production, so vasopressin being one. Now, there are synthetic analogues of vasopressin, because I think it's called desmopressin, yeah. is that right? Yeah, and that can be used to actually Im uh, reduce nighttime peeing as well, because it's sort of compensating for that, that drop in amplitude. Um, so, yeah, that's one thought. Talking about humility, Russell. <laughs> yes. Do you ever think... <laughs> Don't do know where you, this is going. <laughs> do, do you ever think... Um, this, this idea that every organ system in the body is running on its own clock and we're learning with all this modern science how incredible that is and how the liver has its own clock, the bladder, the kidneys, all these things have their own clock. Mm. To my knowledge, yep. 
Traditional Chinese medicine has been saying this for, I don't know, two, three thousand years. I find that really fascinating mm. that there was in that culture an understanding and knowing of rhythmicity. Of rhythmicity. Yes, yes. I don't know. Do you yeah. ever reflect well, on that? Well, yes, I do. Um, and, and every time I sort of give a, a, a sort of a public talk, um, somebody says, "What about Chinese medicine?" And, and do they? You know, yeah, oh yeah. People wow. are, are very sensitive and aware about uh, of it. And of course, in the West, we've we've rather sort of rejected it as you know being something a bit weird. Um, but they did get the bigger picture mm. that biology follows a rhythm and that one needs to think about medicines and one's activities that that enhance that rhythm. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. No, it, it is absolutely fascinating, yeah. I want to talk about rest for a moment. Oh, yes. It's something I've, I've been thinking a lot about recently, rest. And what, one of the reasons this has come up for me is that you talk a lot about sleep. I talk a lot about sleep. And what I would notice for quite a few years now, is that some people who are apparently sleeping well are waking up feeling unrested. Hmm. And in particular, when I've dived deep here, what I've noticed is a lot of people these days, they are staying stimulated in the one hour before bed. Hmm. Yeah. Whether on a device or anything else, right? they're staying stimulated so they're not winding down. And they say, yeah, I sleep fine, but I wake up feeling exhausted. Mm. And I found that with those individuals, when I can help them realize the importance of winding down for an hour, ideally 90 minutes, well, let's say an hour, they're actually having the same amount of sleep, apparently. They're not measuring it or tracking it, but they're waking up feeling refreshed. Mm. Mm. I don't know if you have any data to support that well, or you have any the, well, thoughts the, on that. Yeah. I, I mean, where we have some interesting data is that during the day, if you could go into a state of quiet restfulness, then you actually do um, benefit. You you do feel more restored and and your productivity during the second half of the day can improve. And that's without sleep. That's just with quiet, you know, quiet relaxation. And it helps you sleep at night? And it helps you sleep at night. So, so... W w there's it's, Napping is a very interesting issue. So, the, so the, the, the agreed sort of metric for napping is... 20 minutes, ideally no longer than 30 minutes, around the middle of the day can enhance your, your, your ability to function later in the day. And that's going into sleep. Longer than that, it can be counterproductive. And of course, the danger for napping is, of course, if it becomes very long, because then, and it's close to bedtime, because then it'll push back the pressure for uh, sleep and, you, and you'll find it very difficult to get off to sleep. But short naps, fine. And um, I don't see anything wrong with that on the basis of the, of the data that we know. Um, that quiet relaxation before bed, I think is really interesting. We know that uh, relaxation will allow you to get to sleep easier. Whether it produces more restful sleep, and what do we mean by restful sleep? And it's essentially restful sleep is regular sleep. Uh, I don't know. And, 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 and whether the structure of the REM, non-REM cycle is influenced in some way, and maybe if you're waking from REM sleep naturally, you will feel more rested because that's how we naturally mm. wake up. So if you've used that relaxation and it's and it's changed the timing of sleep in some way mm. so that you then ultimately wake up in REM sleep rather than non-REM sleep, 
you probably will feel more rested. But we don't have any studies. I've seen it in enough people to know there's something going on. Yeah. Sort of my clinical acumen tells me there's something going on here. And I haven't measured it, but I, I've seen that if you apparently, for the same amount of sleep in the same way, if you relax for an hour before that compared to being stimulated, subjectively at least, people are saying, oh, I feel much more rested. I felt that myself. Yeah. There's some also some really interesting stuff emerging on using sound frequencies to induce slow wave sleep while you're asleep. And um, EMDR? Uh, th well, no, this, this, yes. So what you've got is these specific um, uh, frequencies um, and you can actually, you can increase slow wave sleep. Uh, and... That has been, there's one or two papers suggesting that your uh, memory formation and problem solving might be enhanced by that. But it's a very tiny effect. Trouble is, it's now, you know, commercial companies are now jumping on it, saying, all oh, right, you can enhance your sleep, you know, with these sound frequencies. And I don't, I don't know how beneficial it will ultimately turn out to be. I guess it comes down to what we've repeated on many occasions. If you use sound therapy and you're waking up feeling better and you answer those questions and subjectively you have more energy, your relationships are better, your patience is better, great. Yep. If it isn't <laughs> and it's making you feel more obsessed about measuring all these metrics, it's possibly not. Yes, yes. I mean, bottom line is uh, anything that relaxes you um, before you go to sleep is going to be good for yeah. sleep. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I was unconvinced by mindfulness when it first started, you know, rumbling around 20 years or so ago. Were you, were you an Oxford neuroscientist with a healthy dose of scepticism about something massive. called mindfulness? In fact, it's worse than that. You talked about arrogance. And I, I abjectly apologise <laughs> because the data are now clear that, that that type of relaxation technique can be very useful to, for enhancing, for reducing insomnia. Any in time some of the people. day? Um, ideally, before you go to sleep, um, you know, so it's in that sort of few hours uh, running up to sleep. But yeah. yeah, I think it's anything that de-stresses, relaxes yeah. towards the second half of the day is going to be helpful. And I think just picking up on the point you mentioned a few minutes ago, that lunchtime break, you know, I talk a lot about stress thresholds and that, that we accumulate micro stress doses throughout the day. I call a micro stress dose, a dose of stress, a little dose of stress in isolation, you can handle just fine. Mm. But when they accumulate one after the other, they get mm. you closer and closer to your stress threshold. Yes. And what I find these days is that people, they're just accumulating these micro stress doses continuously. They feel pressure. I'm not going to take my lunch break. I've got too much to do. Yeah. So they're just accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. So in the evening, they're just wound up. They're Absolutely. past their threshold. They can't yeah. sleep. They need to stay up late to binge watch. But yep. a little lunchtime reset, a 20-minute walk, yes. it can just reduce how how much that threshold, you know, how much that dosage is, as it were. Yeah, and, and connected to that, I think it's very interesting that poor sleep is associated with the reduced ability to multitask. Because what we're having to do is make lots of decisions from a cloud of stuff that we're being exposed to. Yeah. And and so good sleep will actually help with teasing out what's needed to be done from the massive information that we're being inputted. And so reduce to some extent that feeling of being overwhelmed um, during yeah. the day. Weighted blankets? Do you know much about yeah, that? Yeah, I did look into this um, uh, in the book. And because 
individuals, parents with children with autism, swear by them. Absolutely. Um, and they abs you know, absolutely say they're fantastic. Sadly, the data doesn't support that. Um, and so the studies that I've seen, and when I published um, Lifetime, uh, the data was that it makes no difference. I, I, I've looked it up for other reasons recently, and um, one of the uh, Royal Colleges, uh, Royal College of Occupational Health, their conclusion also was that weighted blankets have probably little little or no effect so what people like them they they feel more relaxed with them but it's not having a big impact upon sleep that's the consensus i mean i find that slightly awkward because anything that relaxes you and de-stresses you is probably going to enhance the sleep it, so it's teasing i think it's teasing apart the, let me, that, those things let me put this mm. to you you're you're uh you know you're a very well-respected scientist right so you do studies you assess what works what doesn't work at, you know and a host of other things. If we just take weighted blankets for a moment, mm. you and I both know plenty of mothers who say that was game changing yes. for their child. Mm. So in that individual case, it's working. Something's working, yeah. right? And then could we say, to play devil's advocate, that sometimes, could we say one of the downsides sometimes to scientific studies which lead to these singular conclusions and you're, you're the world-respected scientist here, not me, right? <laughs> so I, I'd love your perspective on this. Let's say that study had 100 people in it, right? And let's say 20 kids did improve their sleep, but, you know, 20 didn't and 60, you couldn't tell, or whatever it might be. When you're then uh, averaging this out to say, does it work or does it not work, might we sometimes miss out the individuals who do get benefits when we give these broad conclusions? Were you in my home last night? I, um, I was not, to my knowledge. <laughs> because that is exactly the conversation I was having with our youngest daughter, Victoria, who's oh, really? in second year of medical school. Oh. And I was saying that by taking an average, we're losing the variation. And what I want to see is uh, ideally longitudinal studies where you can, where you look at individual responses over time to a particular yeah. stimulus by taking a great, and, and the larger the, the larger the, 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 the cohort often, the, 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 the averaging loses that variation. Yeah. And, and I think that's an incredibly important point because we might be missing the, the, those individuals who do respond to that sort of thing by taking an And I wouldn't want any mother listening to this who is finding benefit to stop using no, it. No, no, I completely agree. And, and if it works for no you, there's no downside either, right? No, let's look no. at side effects. There's no downside. And it, it, let's not be rude about placebo because, you know, placebo has an effect. If it's a placebo effect, well, that's fine. It's working. Um, and I think there is, you, but you raise a really important point and something that I find increasingly frustrating is that we take an average and therefore we set that as a standard for everybody and it's completely wrong mm. and it goes back to you must get eight hours of sleep well that's the average but it ranges between six and ten and a half hours um and and so it, it, an average an average can be deeply misleading and very harmful under certain circumstances it's a guide it's kind of an indicator but it shouldn't be used as a metric yeah. for everybody russell you know how much i love your work you know how much I love your book, Lifetime. It was published two years ago. If you were publishing it today, 
What would you add to it? Well, I think there's been progress in the past two years, almost in every field. Um, And so our understanding of fundamental mechanisms, and and it's not a mechanisms-heavy book. It's more of sort of, you know, consequences. Uh, But I'd like to have a bit more mechanisms because it's turned out to be so fascinating. It's very well written. And one thing (laughs) I, I really enjoy about it is I think you have a certain style as a writer. You bring a lot of historical perspective, a bit of humour that you've, you know, you've touched a bit on you in this conversation today. I think that really adds to it. There, there is the science in there, but there's also some really nice human stories. Thank you. Well, uh, and I didn't have the courage to do that originally. I mean, I threw in an anecdote and the, and the, and the Tom Killingbeck, who was, my, who was my editor at the time, said, oh, that's great. Don't be afraid. Yeah. But thing. And so it was like a champagne court going off. I, I you know, I could then add in all these sorts of things I, I'd I, love to add in. Did, uh, and, and, and people have, have said that it's very much uh, helped. Just the, the a quip um, has helped them sort of get through some of the tougher bits of the science. Was there not a bit about the song Yesterday being... Oh. Mm. Maybe tell the story yeah, of Yesterday. Well, well, I mean, it's incredible. We were talking about, you know, the importance of sleep and, and actually coming up with novel solutions to complex problems. And, you know, what our grandparents said was sleep on it. And there are loads of anecdotal examples whereby people have slept on an issue. And and so Paul McCartney woke with the entire song, as I understand it, of yesterday formed in his brain. His brain had been ticking over and constructing. I think it's right. The the chap that um, uh, worked out that the benzene uh, molecule is a ring. He had a dream about a snake biting his tail. So he woke up and thought, ah, it's a ring structure. That's how the carbon atoms are organised. And there are, and I think we all have had those sorts of anecdotal experiences. Oh gosh, yes, that's that's what I yeah, to do. I love it. Yeah. Mm. Our, it's our, a great illustration. Our of grandparents my, knew. Our grandparents as, as <laughs> always tended to know. <laughs> to finish off our conversation, Russell, we've covered so much in our first one and in this one. There's plenty more in the book that we've not spoken about for people who want to <laughs> dive deeper. Just to finish off though, the importance of sleep, I would say, has grown significantly in the public sphere Mm. over the last 10 years or so. There's much more awareness now that sleep is really important. Mm -hmm. Are there any downsides to raising awareness of sleep? Yes, I think there are. I mean, I I think if we raise awareness without providing the educational underpinning, we can generate anxiety. And you do have a condition now called sleep anxiety because people are now bombarded with conflicting advice, the six hours, the waking up in the middle of the night, what you should and what you shouldn't do, whether you should wear an app um, and all of the other sorts of things. And, And I think what we must do is embed knowledge about sleep and circadian biology within our curriculum. Let's get our young people understanding the value uh, of sleep and and have that voice that's authoritative. And I and I think uh, that would be really useful. Um, and I've I've sort of argued that that what we need is a is perhaps the government should should sponsor an authoritative website where you're going to where, where different questions are addressed about sleep and circadian rhythms and it's not simply a dis, you know melatonin is a sleep hormone you know all these sorts mm. of shorthands which are confusing people say, oh if i take melatonin i'm going to sleep well no you're not necessarily yeah thank you and i want to make sure we did cover this in the first conversation 
Um, shift workers, we did a deep dive on that in, in conversation one. Yes. We, you know, we recognize that it can't be easy to hear all this if you are a shift worker. Also, we covered young parents who yeah. often get really anxious when they hear about some of the consequences of poor sleep. And what we said in the first conversation, what you said was, don't be afraid to ask for help Absolutely. if you're feeling tired. Get a friend around while she have a nap. You know, recognize that it's hard, and don't worry too much. No, and get it's that short structure term. in place. I mean, you know, as we've shifted from the extended family to the nuclear yeah. family, you know, we've got to reach out to our friends and family to get that additional support. We did not evolve without that support. You know, a single, you know, a mother on her own is would never evolve to, yeah. to to do that support. So we must and and get rid of the guilt. Yeah. And final words, Russell, for someone who feels inspired by what they've heard and is thinking, you know what? I've not given sleep enough of a priority. I've heard some new things today. I'm going to go and try and get it sorted in my own life. Yeah. What are your final words of wisdom for them? Well, I think that um, it, it's, it's, everybody thinks that, that sleep is what you get rather than having any control over it. And so I think understanding that the quality of our sleep defines the quality of our wake, but it's an incredibly dynamic and flexible behaviour. We just need to find the ways that work for us and then embrace it. Um, it's It shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was the, the key message in Lifetime, which is that, you know, we, we have control to a greater extent than we think over our sleep by using simple modifications of behaviour. Russell, you have been doing incredible work all throughout your career. It's helping individuals. It's helping wider society. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a great privilege. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Do think about one thing that you can take away and apply into your own life. And also have a think about one thing from this conversation that you can teach to somebody else. Remember, when you teach someone, it not only helps them, it also helps you learn and retain the information. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change, movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. 
And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.